0: Last week we started one of the best and most important sections in the book of Romans and really in all of the Bible, the section on salvation. And in this section on salvation, Paul is going to be dealing with three main things. First, Paul gives us an explanation of righteousness. Second, an illustration of justification by faith. And third, he shares the results of being righteous and justified before God. Last week, we looked at this explanation of just, uh, being righteous before God, and uh, the way that Paul explained that is by answering seven very important questions that have to deal with how someone becomes righteous. And one of the most important things that Paul revealed to us is the only way that you and I can receive God's righteousness is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. He makes very clear it's not according to the law. It's not according to our works. We can never become righteous by the things that we do. Now, in answering the question, what did it cost God to provide us his righteousness, Paul shared with us a wonderful picture about justification. Justification is God declaring us not guilty. It's God seeing us just as if we never sinned. But how can God declare a guilty sinner like you and me as not guilty? How can God see sinful people just as if they never sinned? Well, the only way that God can do that is because of the wonderful exchange that happens when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, because He lived a sinless life, because He died on the cross for our sins, He is able to give us His sinlessness, and He takes our sin and places it upon Himself, and because we receive the sinlessness of Jesus, when we place our faith in Him, God can now see us just as if we never sinned. He can see us as not guilty. Now, the message of justification by faith alone was a message not very popular among many people that Paul was writing to in the Roman Empire. And the group that would have the most difficulty accepting this uh, view of justification by faith would be the religious Jews. And the reason that many religious Jews struggled with justification by faith alone is because they thought, hey, we're justified because of who we are and because of what we do. They thought, hey, we're justified because we have the law and we try to do the law. We're justified because we are descendants of Abraham. We're justified because we have the ritual of circumcision. But these beliefs, they they caused these Jewish people to become prideful, to think, oh, we're better than the rest of the world. They started boasting and having the law and having circumcision and having the heritage of Abraham. And in the last section on sin, Paul shot down these beliefs. He helped them to see that the law can never justify you unless you do it perfectly which no one can circumcision can't justify you and so he he brings out this reality and that the only thing that can justify us is faith in Jesus now Paul having been a a very high-ranking religious Jew himself he knew the arguments that many Jews would have to this concept of justification by faith not by works So after explaining how you can become righteous, Paul's now going to illustrate justification by faith. And the illustrations that Paul's going to use are really directed towards religious Jews. Paul is going to choose to illustrate this justification by faith by using two of the heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham, the father of faith, and David, the great warrior and king of the Jews. By illustrating this, Paul wants these religious Jews and us to see justification by faith is not something new. It's not something that Paul has come up with himself. This is something that is throughout the Old Testament. This is something that is clearly seen in the Old Testament heroes of faith. David practiced it and recognized it. Abraham practiced it and recognized it. You know, justification by faith alone is really one of the most important doctrines that we have as Christians. When Martin Luther finally understood justification by faith alone, it was at that point when he finally was saved and he started the Protestant Reformation. And one of the main things that the Protestant Reformation did is it challenged the lie that the Catholic Church was teaching and still does teach that you can be saved by your works. You can be justified by what you do, not by your faith in Jesus. Martin Luther said this about justification by faith. Justification by faith alone is the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. If the article of justification is lost, All Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. You know, justification by faith alone is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of our relationship with Jesus. And it's one of the most important doctrines to understand. But I also want you to realize, in the church world today, it's one of the most attacked doctrines. There are many people who will claim in attacking the doctrine of justification by faith that you can be justified by your works. You're justified, you're made righteous by what you do. Or others will take the middle ground. Oh, you definitely need to have faith, but it's faith and your works that justify you before God. But the Bible makes very clear, justification by faith alone is what saves you. You know, I I read, uh, Some statistics recently from the Barna Research Group that was quite disturbing. They did a a large survey among churchgoers. So Obviously, not all of these people are born-again believers, but they're churchgoers, and they asked them some questions, and 48% of these churchgoers surveyed said this. They believe that if people are generally good or do enough good things for others, they will earn a place in heaven. 48% 48% of churchgoers are saying this. Justification by faith is, or justification comes by your works. If you can earn it by doing enough good things. George Barner, the president of the Barner Research Group, he said this after he did this survey. There is plenty of reasons for churches to worry if nearly one half of their people who believe in evangelism also believe in salvation by works. The central message of Protestantism is in salvation by faith alone in Christ, yet many Protestant evangelizers seem to be preaching a different message. This is scary, and it's sad that so many within the body of Christ believe that my salvation comes through what I do, and that is what they're telling others as well. Hey, you want to be saved? Well, you got to go to church. You got to do good works. You got to do this. You got to do that. That's not what saves us. Our salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. This is why this is such an important subject that we're going to be looking at this morning. It is vital for us not only to understand it personally, but that we make sure that when we're sharing the gospel, that we recognize we need to tell people it's faith alone, not what they do that ultimately saves them. Now, before Paul gets into these illustrations of justification by faith in the life of Abraham and the life of David, he's going to end chapter 3 by kind of setting the stage for these illustrations by asking several important questions about justification by faith. Let's start with what he says here at the end of chapter 3, where we left off last week, starting in verse 27. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No. No but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. If people are justified by their faith and not by their works, the first question that Paul poses, it's a great one. Well, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Well, by what law? The law of works? No, the law of faith. When someone believes their salvation or their justification comes because of what they do, their natural instinct is to boast. Oh, look at all I have done to achieve and to earn salvation and approval and justification before God. I'm so much better than you. Look at how all I've done versus what you've done. Or my heritage is what justifies me. It isn't so great that I have the connection to Abraham or I have Christian parents or I'm an American or whatever our heritage is that we want to hold to that we think this is what makes us justified and we boast in that. Or my rituals... For the Jews, circumcision, for many, uh, baptism or confirmation or some kind of ritual, going to church. You know, these things is what I hold to. And I'm better than you because I've done it and you haven't. If it's by our works or our heritage or our rituals, then yes, we can sit there and boast and say, look at me. But it's not by any of those things. It's only by faith and because it's only by faith it removes all boasting because it has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what God has done for us. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Our boasting is excluded because we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It's not about doing the law, doing good works. But you know what? Our flesh doesn't like this. There's within us this desire to do something to earn God's approval, to do something to earn our salvation. You know, we want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look at what I've done. I've I've done this and I've done that and I've done that. And now God, you know, did, I, I've earned this. He, he has to give me these things. But we don't have anything to boast about. It is something that is freely given by God's grace, not something that we work for to earn. Warren Wearsby said this, If salvation is through the law, then men can boast. But the principle of faith makes it impossible for men to boast. The swimmer, when he's saved from drowning, does not brag because he trusted the lifeguard. What else could he do? When a believing sinner is justified by faith, he cannot boast in his faith, but he can boast in a wonderful savior. You know, some people today are trying to take the middle ground. Oh yeah, I, I believe you have to have faith. But you need to also have the works of the law. Faith plus the works of the law are what save you. Paul wants to make that very clear. That's not the case. It's faith apart from the works, not and. Apart from the works of the law is what ultimately brings us justification. Paul asks a couple more questions in verses 29 and 30. He says this, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You know, many of the Jews believe that God was really only for them. You know, the Gentiles, they were just, you know, fuel for hell in their mindset. God was just for them and them alone. And so they believe that, you know, they were the only one who could be justified because they had the right heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. They had the right rituals. They were circumcised. They had the law. All these things are what made them in that place where, hey, God is only going to be our God. And so Paul poses an important question. He asks, is God the God of the Jews only? The answer is no. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he is the God of the Gentiles also. Now, Paul brings up something very important because the Jews, one of their you know uh, doctrines that they believe, which is true, is in monotheism, that there is only one God. And so I say, now, now, are you claiming that you Jews have a God and then the Gentiles have another? No, there's only one God. There's only one God that we serve. Jew, Gentile, everybody has to come to him. There's only One And this one God is going to justify the circumcised, which are the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, which is the Gentiles, by faith. So not only is justification available to both Jew and Gentile, it's also received in the exact same way. Since there's one God who justifies both Jew and Gentile, he justifies them in the same way by faith in Jesus. Now all of what Paul is saying here about faith would... Bring the question that many Jews would now pose and what he poses in verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? And you can see why someone might pose this question. All right, law, uh, Paul, if, if the law doesn't make us righteous, then what good is it? It seems like you've made the law void. It seems like, you know, you're against the law of God. Paul's answer to that question is certainly not. We haven't made the law void. On the contrary, we establish The law. You see, the purpose of the law was never to save us. It was never to justify us. It was never to make us righteous. God gave us the law, his perfect standard, so that we could see we fall short. We don't do it. The purpose was to point us to Jesus, to point us to the one who actually kept the law, to point us to our need for a savior. And so Paul says, when we actually come to Jesus, we don't make the law void. We actually establish it because we now are doing what the law's purpose always was to point us to Jesus. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, we're actually establishing why the law was given. We're not making it void. And the the reason that they would think that it was void is because they misunderstood why God gave it. He never gave it for them to actually be able to keep it because he knew they couldn't. He gave it to point them to their need for Jesus. So now that Paul has laid out these questions, he's going to answer them even in more detail because he's going to give us now five illustrations with the life of Abraham, the life of David, and with these illustrations, he's going to help us go deeper into this concept of justification by faith alone. The first illustration that Paul uses comes from the life of Abraham, starting in chapter four, verse one, says this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul's first illustration here is of the fact that Abraham was justified by his faith, his belief, not by any works that he did. Now, before we get into this, I think it's important to know how the Jews of that time viewed Abraham, because their view of Abraham was very unbiblical. They had placed Abraham on this pedestal, and they saw him in a light that the Bible definitely doesn't portray him as. And I'll give you some um, examples of what they were writing back in that time that would cause them to have a really unbiblical view of Abraham. The book of Jubilees, which is an ancient Jewish writing written about a hundred years before Christ came, it says this about Abraham. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. The prayer of Manasseh, which is another ancient Jewish document, says this about Abraham. Abraham was just and has not sinned against thee. So many of the Jews had this concept that ultimately Abraham was kind of like this perfect guy who always did what was right and was always obedient to the Lord. Now for those of you who have been coming on Thursday and as we're going through the book of Genesis and we're going through Abraham's life right now, you're thinking, what Bible are they reading? Because his life is full of sin. I mean, he's done so many disobedient things. And even as we just looked at last week, now that he's 100 years old, he goes back to a sin that he did you know, when he was in his 60s. Here's a man who continued to sin. This is not a biblical view, but it was the view of the Jews of that time that Abraham, because he was so uh, obedient and did so many good works, that is what gave him righteousness. And they were looking at him as the example. Since Abraham did it, That's how we'll do it. Since Abraham was able to keep the law, then we'll be able to keep the law. But the reality was Abraham wasn't even close to keeping the law and none of them could either. And so Paul is gonna share some important truths about the Old Testament to them, but he's also in doing so uh, going to help them see what the Bible actually says uh, about Abraham, not just uh, their messed up view um, of him. So Paul starts Posing this question here um, for them. My thing just went blank for a second. (laughs) And should be my next slide. Oh, we're behind a slide too. Give me a moment. So Paul's quoting now from um, Genesis chapter 15 verses three through six, when he reveals, okay, what ultimately made Abraham righteous? Was it what he did or not? And he brings these Jews back to this portion of scripture, and I'll read, uh, he just quotes verse six, but I'll read verses three through six to you, which says this, Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one is born in my house as my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Paul quotes this to clearly show, what is it that made Abraham righteous? It wasn't his works. God comes to him and says, hey, I promise that I'm going to give you a son. And you know what? Here, come look outside. See all these stars? Not only am I going to give you a son, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a huge amount of descendants like the stars in the sky. And we're told that Abraham believed in this promise of God. And it was that belief in that promise that God then said, now I account that to you for righteousness. It wasn't that Abraham did a work that made him righteous. It was his belief. It was his faith in the promise of God that made him righteous. Now this word here is interesting. It says it was accounted to Abraham as righteous. This word accounted means to pass to one's account, to impute. This was a banking term that meant to take from one account and to place it into another or transfer it. So when Abraham believed in the Lord, God transferred out Abraham's unrighteous sin and transferred in God's righteousness. And the key here is why God did this. It was because of Abraham's faith, not his good works. And so he brings these Jewish believers or people that are reading this back to this place of, well, look what it says in the Old Testament. Abraham was righteous, not by works, but by faith. And so in this first illustration, Paul reveals, we are justified by our faith in Jesus, not by our works. When we put our faith in Jesus, God transfers our sin out of our accounts and his righteousness into our account. Well, now Paul is going to give us his second illustration in verses 4 and 5, which say this. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul's second illustration here is a contrast between works and grace. And the thing that he uses is just a common picture of someone who works a job. Paul says, now to him who works, the wages are counted as grace, not as grace, but as debt. Those three words here that I want us to define to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. The first one is the word translated wages, which means something earned and due to someone because of the work they have done. We all get a wage, a paycheck for the work that we've done. The second word is grace, which means favor that is given to someone that hasn't earned it and doesn't deserve it. And the third word is debt, meaning something that is owed to someone. So in using this illustration, Paul is saying, hey, I want you to picture someone who has, who does work at a job and When you work all week, you you get a wage, you get a paycheck. It's something that you've earned. It's something that is due to you because of the work that you have done. Now, that wage is not counted as grace. Your paycheck is not a favor that you don't deserve. It's not a favor that you haven't earned. Your paycheck is a debt. It is owed to you, why? Because you've done this work. It's actually legally owed to you. So if your employer tries to hold that back from you, you can take him to court because he legally has to pay you because of the work that you've done. He's in debt to you because of the work that you've done for him. So what Paul wants us to understand in this illustration is that our works earn something for someone, and they make that person indebted to us. But that is the opposite of grace. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Grace is getting what I can't earn. Now, since grace and work are opposite of one another, Paul is saying you have to approach God in one way or the other. You're either going to approach him based on works, Or you're going to approach them based on grace, but you can't approach them in the middle ground. You can't try to say, well, I'll do grace and works together. No, they're completely opposite. They don't come together. You either approach them one way or the other. You can't do both. The person who relates to God through works, they believe God owes them. They believe God is in debt to them because of their work. Hey, we have earned justification by what we have done. But Paul has made very clear in this letter, our works can never Justify us before God. You see, justification is God declaring us not guilty. It doesn't matter how many good works you do, it will never change the fact that you're guilty for the things that you have done that are sinful. So good works will never change and make us justified. So we have to stop trying to relate to God based on our works and start relating to Him based on grace and faith in Christ. The principle of receiving a gift by faith is the opposite of of receiving a wage that you work for. You know, if you were to offer me a gift and I were to turn around and say, hey, hey, let me work for it, let me pay you for it, then it would no longer be a gift. It's now something that I'm earning. It's now something that you're giving me more as a paycheck because I'm doing something for you than a gift. If you mix human works and God's grace, it's no longer grace. The promise of salvation as a free gift received by faith is nullified and turn into a debt for payments of service rendered. That's why Paul says in verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God only justifies those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. He does not justify those who try to have a works-based relationship with him. Righteousness can never be accounted to one who approaches God on the principle of works. Just like with Abraham, our faith in God is what accounts it to us as righteousness. David Guzik said this, But this we understand that there are not two ways of salvation, saved by works through law keeping in the Old Testament and saved by grace through faith in the New Testament. Everyone who has ever been saved, old or New Testament is saved by grace through faith through the relationship of a trusting love with God. Because of the new covenant, we have benefits of salvation that Old Testament saints did not have, but we do not have a different manner of salvation. God has always saved everyone the same way, through faith. There was never anyone who was saved through works. So in the second illustration Paul reveals Only those who rely upon faith in Jesus and God's grace, not their works, will be justified. It's been said, righteousness is that which the Father required, the Son became, the Holy Spirit convinces of, and faith secures. Not works, faith. Well, now Paul's going to give us his third illustration in verses 6-8. through Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Here in this third illustration, Paul now brings another hero of the Jewish faith, David, the great warrior who conquered Goliath, the great king. And in this illustration, he says, hey, even David understood that God gives righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes something that David wrote in Psalms uh, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. And he quotes it saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, something very interesting to note is when this psalm was written, David wrote this psalm right after he was caught in two sins, adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. He was then caught... And his response was one of repentance. He came and cried out and repented before the Lord, and the Lord forgave him. And right after this moment of forgiveness, he then writes this psalm and shares how blessed is the person that receives forgiveness from God, how blessed is the person that the Lord shall not impute sin to. You know, one of the main things that Paul has communicated in the first two illustrations is God's grace. God giving to us what we don't deserve and can't earn. And one of the things that Paul is communicating here in David's life is God's mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. David deserved judgment. David deserved lots of things for murder and adultery, but in God's mercy, because David had faith in him, he didn't get what he deserved. You know, there's a word here that Paul uses that paints a great picture of not only God's grace, but also his mercy. It's this word impute. Paul uses it twice here in his illustration of David. He says, The blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin." Now, this is interesting because he's just used this word when the first illustration with Abraham is just translated different. It's the same Greek word, but with Abraham in verse 3, it's uh, translated accounted to him for righteousness. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this word means to pass from one account to another. It's an accounting term. Now, the interesting thing here is that Paul speaks of this word with two different types of transfers. With Abraham, it was a positive transfer. God is transferring in his righteousness. With David, it's God is not transferring in the sin that you deserve. And this is both sides of the wonderful reality of when we put our faith in God, what happens? We get grace. God gives us what we couldn't earn, what we don't deserve, his righteousness. But also, he does not impute our sin. Into our account, the sin doesn't go because now Jesus has given us his sinlessness and we don't have that. God now sees us, though our sins were as scarlet, he sees us white as snow. A bookkeeper would look at this and say, you know, if a generous donor was placing vast credits into our account and also refusing to debt, uh, to debit our withdrawals, but rather place them against his own account. So David understood the mercy of God. He understood it by experience. Here's a murderer, here's an adulterer, and God forgave his sin. God poured his mercy on him. Richard Lenski said this, No sinner can possibly carry his own sin away and come back cleansed of guilt. No amount of money, no science, no inventive skills, no armies of millions, nor any other earthly power can carry away from the sinner one little sin and its guilt. Once it's committed, every sin and its guilt cling to the sinner as close as does his own shadow cling to all eternity, unless God carries them away. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves innocent. We're guilty. We can't do a bunch of works to now bring ourselves to innocence before God because we're guilty sinners. The only way it can happen is if God removes it. If God takes it away. And God only does that. He only gives us his mercy in that way for those who place their faith in Jesus. So through this third illustration, Paul reveals God, through his mercy, won't give sinful people what they deserve if they place their faith in him. You know, this is such wonderful news because our sin has brought on us a deserving of hell. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. We deserve God's judgment for all eternity. But because we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God pours his mercy upon us and he does not give to us what each one of us deserves. Paul gives his fourth illustration in verses 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now Paul has already revealed that the works of the law is not what justified Abraham. But the Jewish people, you know, they say, well, that's fine. There's other things that we hold to that we think would justify us, our heritage, our ritual of circumcision. And so Paul now wants to help them see, you know what? Circumcision is also not something that justifies you. And he does this with this fourth illustration of Abraham, of when was Abraham justified? Before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Because that's an important thing. To note. And so he starts with um, posing this question Does this blessedness, speaking of being justified, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? So Paul's saying, hey, does justification by God come upon just those who are circumcised, the Jews, or does it come upon the uncircumcised Gentiles as well? Now, the Jews would say, well, it only comes upon us. Only the circumcised can have justification before God. And so Paul says, okay, well, let me pose a couple more questions to show the fallacy of that kind of thinking. But he starts with this. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. He's bringing them back to what he just said. You know, Genesis fifteen six. we already looked at it. Hey, Abraham was given righteousness because of his faith, not his works. So now let me ask you, these two questions. How then was righteousness, um, how then was righteousness accounted while Abraham was circumcised or uncircumcised? The question that Paul ultimately is asking is, when did it happen? When was Abraham given this righteousness by God? Before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Well, God gave Abraham righteousness in Genesis fifteen six. God didn't give circumcision until chapter 17 which was at least 14 years later. So Abraham received righteousness at least 14 years before he had this circumcision given and before he was personally circumcised. Now the point Paul is making is that righteousness couldn't have come because of circumcision because Abraham was made righteous 14 years before he was ever circumcised. Circumcision had no bearing on Abraham's righteousness, and because of that, it has no bearing on anyone else who's circumcised either. If his righteousness came by faith apart from circumcision, then for all of you who are uh, depending on your circumcision, you're out of luck. Because that's not what caused Abraham to be righteous. But you know what? There's something that's deeper that Paul wants to bring out. He's definitely bringing out, your circumcision isn't what saved you, it's not what saved Abraham. But now he's going to share something even deeper that these religious Jews completely missed. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. What Paul is revealing here is since Abraham was righteous by faith before he was circumcised, Abraham isn't just the father of those who are circumcised, he's also the father of those who aren't circumcised. Because righteousness came to Abraham when he was an uncircumcised man. And so he's not just the father of people who are circumcised because he was made righteous far before that. You see, the Jews of Paul's day thought the only way to be linked to Abraham was to be circumcised as Abraham was circumcised. But Paul is saying, you know what? That's not the best link to Abraham. There's a far better link to Abraham than circumcision, and that is the link of faith, that you would have the faith That Abraham had in God, that's the link that's the best link to have. Faith, not circumcision, is the vital link to Abraham. It's far more important to have Abraham's faith than to have Abraham's circumcision. Why? Abraham's faith made him righteous. His circumcision didn't. So you can have Abraham's circumcision all you want. You're not right with God. So he's saying the best link is Abraham's faith because that's what truly makes you right with God. That's what truly justifies you. If you only have Abraham's circumcision, yes, you're a descendant of Abraham, but you're not right with God. So it still does you no good. Since the most important link to Abraham being your father is by faith, not by circumcision, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised can have this link to Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And this would have blown the minds of these Jews with how in the world could a Gentile be linked to Abraham? He's linked through faith. So through this fourth illustration, Paul reveals faith, not circumcision, justifies us before God and connects us to Abraham. Well, now Paul's going to give us his fifth and final illustration here in verses 13 through 22. He says this starting in verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. In this fifth illustration, Paul focuses on the promise that God had given to Abraham. And he wants us to know, what was that promise through? The promise that Paul is referring to is the promise that God would give Abraham a son and that son would become a great nation. And through someone in that nation, speaking of Jesus and Messiah, the whole earth would be blessed because he would be sacrificed on the cross for our sin. So the question is, when God gave that promise to Abraham, what did God give that promise through? Well, Paul starts off with what God didn't give the promise through. The promise was not given through the law. And that seems to be real obvious, just like circumcision is real obvious, because the law wasn't given until hundreds of years later when Moses shows up. So the law is never given in the life of Abraham. So it's pretty clear that Paul is saying, hey, this wasn't given through the law, which didn't even exist yet. It hadn't been given yet. And so to think that it came through that is just foolishness. Abraham believed his faith. He believed in the promise of God, and that is what was accounted to him as righteousness. It had nothing to do with with the law. Now Paul reveals in verses 14 and 15, hey, if the law did, if the promise was given to us through the law and not through faith, we got a problem. And notice what he shares here. He says, "For those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression." If the promise to Abraham and his descendants comes through the law and not through faith, then Faith is void, and the promise of God is made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. If God's promise was based on keeping the law, then faith is void because it's no longer needed. Oh, I don't need it. I can do the law in order to get the promise. So there's faith is now void. It's it's not uh, something that's needed, but the promise would be made of no effect. Why? The promise is not effective anymore because if it's based on the law, I can't keep the law. And since I can't keep the law, I can never receive the promise. So it makes faith void and it makes the promise of no effect because nobody can keep the law. So we got an even bigger problem because Paul says, you know what the law does bring? It won't bring the promise because you can't keep it, but it will bring something else. God's wrath. So if you're trying to do it through the law, you got a problem. You'll never get the promise, but what you will get is the wrath of God. And so he's bringing this. It had to come through faith. It couldn't come any other way. It can't come through the law because we can't keep the law. So we would never attain the promise. All we would obtain is the wrath of God for not keeping the law of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Since the promise is of faith according to grace and not of the law, according to works, it's available to all who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. If our relationship with God is according to grace, not according to circumcision, not according to heritage, not according to law keeping, then that relationship is for those who are of the faith of Abraham, even if they're not in the lineage of Abraham, even if they're not direct descendants, Jews. So a Gentile could say, I'm not a Jew. I'm not of the law, but you know what I am of? I'm of the faith of Abraham. And that Gentile would be just as saved as a Jewish person who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That the connection to God is through faith, not through the law, not through circumcision, not through heritage. Now, what Paul is saying here is something that was so foreign to the Jewish way of thinking. Abraham is the father of us all, speaking of everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, which would include Gentiles. And that would just blow their mind. They they just couldn't comprehend that. No, Abraham's the father only of Jews. No, Paul says, Abraham's the father of everyone who places their faith like he did in God. He's the spiritual father of those who do that. And Paul expounds on this even more in verses 17 through 22. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul says something twice, a statement twice here that I want to draw your attention to. Notice he says, it's in the Old Testament, it was written very clearly, God made Abraham the father of many nations. God's intention was never that Abraham would just be the father of one nation, the nation of Israel. His purpose and desire was always that he would be the father of many nations. And that would come through faith, not through circumcision, not through bloodline and heritage. God's plan was always that Abraham would be the father, the spiritual father of faith. And Paul shares some great details about how it is that God enabled Abraham to become a physical father. He's a 100 years old, his wife's 90, her womb is dead. How is it that he can now become a physical father? Notice what Paul says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, made it possible for Abraham at a 100 and Sarah with her dead womb, God brought life to it and gave them a son. And Abraham believed that God could do this miracle for him and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So God made Abraham a physical father by giving life to the dead and calling those things which do not exist as though they do. But you know what? That's how God makes Abraham a spiritual father to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. God gives life to those who are dead. The Bible's very clear. You and I are dead in trespasses and sin. And God, who is able to take what is dead and make it alive, brings life to to you and I. He takes us dead in our trespasses and sin and gives us life in him. And God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Well, guess what? Righteousness, justification, they don't exist in us. Paul has spent a huge amount of time in the sin section showing us we do not, there is no one, no, not one righteous person. We don't have that. But God takes something that doesn't exist in us, righteousness and justification, and makes it as though it did. Through Jesus Christ, through our faith in him, now he gives to us his righteousness which never existed in us because we place our faith in Jesus. And so just like he was able to take Abraham and physically do a miracle to make him a father, he is able to spiritually do a miracle for all those who place their faith in Jesus, and that connects To Abraham as our spiritual father. But the main point of this illustration Paul tells us as he finishes here in verses 23 through 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. All that we read about Abraham, it wasn't just recorded for Abraham's sake. The fact that he was justified by his faith and not by his works, that he was made righteous by his faith, not by his works, that wasn't just written for his sake. Paul says it was written for us as well. Why? Because he is an example to us of how we as well can have justification and righteousness. It is by faith alone. Paul says something so wonderful here in verses 24 and 25. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The righteousness of God will be imputed to us who believe in two very important things. That Jesus was delivered because of our offenses, our sin and was raised because of our justification. You know, there's so many people who think, well, if I just have faith that Jesus existed, that's going to save me. No, that's not what this passage says. It's not just faith in Jesus. James says even the demons believe in God and shudder. It's not just, oh, I believe he existed. I believe he was a man. I believe he walked the earth. That's not good enough. The Bible says to believe in two important things about him that he died on the cross for our sin and that he rose from the dead to ultimately bring us justification. He conquered sin and death. That must be part of the belief that we have. It's not just general belief in Jesus as a, a good prophet or a good teacher that so many other cults and religions say. No, it's he is God. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose from the dead and he's the only way to have eternal life. Life. that is the belief that we have to put in. That is what Paul is sharing here, but he shares something so wonderful. If we believe that, God gives us a promise. He gave Abraham a promise, I'm going to give you a son, I give the world a promise they can have my son and my son will ultimately bring them justification. So through this fifth illustration, Paul reveals the righteousness Abraham received by faith assures us that we, will receive God's righteousness if we put our faith in Jesus. Now there is a a common theme that I hope you have seen with every single one of these illustrations. Paul brings it back to faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus is the crux, is the key, is the point. Justification is not by works. It's only by faith and, Jesus. and whenever you read the scriptures and you see an author over and over again really making the same point. With every illustration, he's really making the same point. You're justified by faith alone. You're justified by faith alone. You're justified by faith alone. When you see that re- repetition, it's because, hey, there's a main point that I want you not to miss. You are justified by faith alone, not by your Works. I'm going to give you all these illustrations, all these examples, so that you can come to the conclusion that is so vital. Justification is by faith alone. It's not by anything that we have done or will do. Not by works, not by Christian heritage, not by rituals. It comes for one reason and one reason alone. Faith in the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. So if you're trying to relate to God based off of your works, if you think, I have to earn his approval, I have to earn salvation, stop doing that. That's not how it works. When you're trying to relate to God based on your works, you are taking the free gift of God's grace, the free gift of salvation, and you're turning it into a debt that God owes you, that you are now seeking to earn. But Paul has already made it very clear, we can't do that. It's impossible. There's nothing we could ever do to earn and deserve salvation. There's only one way to receive it. One way to relate to God and that is through faith because of his grace and mercy. We're going to close this morning taking some time to remember this wonderful truth. We are saved by faith but how, what did God have to do In order for that to happen, we're placing our faith in something that Jesus did. And we're going to remember this morning that work that Jesus did. We just have to have faith. Jesus did all the work. He's the one who was sacrificed. He's the one who was pierced. He's the one who was nailed. He was the one who was whipped. He's the one who was mocked. He's the one who took our sin. He's the one who took the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve. And so we're going to finish this morning taking some time to remember him through communion. And I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And as they lead us in a song of worship, we're going to have the communion elements passed around. Uh, This is an open communion. Anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, we encourage you to partake with us. And if you have not, then just let those elements uh, pass by and hold on to them because we're going to take them together. And as the worship team gets themselves set up, I'm just going to read for you something that Paul shares uh, about uh, receiving the Lord's supper or communion together. It says, for I received from the Lord that which I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we have these elements passed around. I just encourage you, take some time. If there's unconfession in your life, bring that before the Lord. Confess that to him. Take some time to thank him and then uh, hold on to those elements. We'll take them together.